Epilogue In June 1981, my wife Leah and I flew to Europe. I wanted to show her the area where I was born and also the places and jails I had inhabited during the war. Forty-three years after I'd left my hometown, Leah and I returned to Wattenscheid. We arrived by car and I couldn't recognize a thing. After we parked the car and walked around, I was able to pick out two landmarks, Catholic and Evangelical churches. Everything fell into place. The coal mines were closed, and instead of the slag heaps and grime, the streets were now immaculately clean, the buildings freshly painted, the environment green and apparently free of pollution. Our home and main store were gone, leaving nothing in their place but a large empty lot, which becomes the outdoor market square one day a week and otherwise provides parking for cars and bicycles for the adjoining business district, now a pedestrian shopping mall. A tall new department store stood at the limit of what had once been our property, but the name emblazoned on the structure was not Hermann Schnitzer. Similarly, our former shoe store on the Oststrasse was tenanted now by a store with a different name. However, the large Woolworth store that had been there when I was growing up was still there, and some of the buildings around the old market square, our home, were designated heritage sites. One of these was the Schulte Apotheke, which still housed the pharmacy, plus the office and home of Dr. Robert Schulte, my boyhood neighbor and friend. Robert greeted us at his door with quick recognition and warmth and swept us into his home to meet and sit down with his family. He telephoned the Schrocks. Erwin had recently died, to my great regret. But Edwig was still as sweet and good and beautiful as ever. She and another employee of my parents, a woman who had had a boyfriend in the SS, had saved pictures of my family and loaned them to us to make copies for Eddie and me. Edwig told of my mother's courage in venturing out of the Jewish house in Doltmund by covering the Jewish star with a fur neck piece. My father's retention of his dignity by always being impeccably dressed, and Benno's tears and concern for my parents in spite of his own exhaustion. From Bochum, with its mixture of sad reminiscences, heartwarming encounters, came an unanswerable silent question. Why? How could it have happened? We visited several spas. Some, such as Bad Kreuznach, have essentially disappeared into the encroaching industrial area. Others, such as Bad Neunach or Schlangenbad, are as pristine and perfect as they ever were. We drove to the Netherlands next and looked for the camp that had swallowed up my friends. Poorly marked roads in a desolate region eventually led to a nature preserve frequented by happy cyclists and hikers. Buried within an unwholesome-looking swamp was a simple, unadorned memorial. A glass case displays a model of Westerbork camp, and a short piece of rail symbolizes the many transports that carried nearly 100,000 Jews, mainly Dutch citizens, from there to Auschwitz and other death camps. It took decades before a memorial was constructed. Perhaps the Dutch had preferred not to draw attention to a camp that they themselves had set up in 1939 to intern Jewish refugees from Germany and which the Nazi conquerors later took over, ready-made for their diabolical purposes. The city of Froniker was next on this odyssey. 
It was unchanged, still picturesque. The old railway station building, site of the Hakshara, had been modernized with new windows and doors and was now a private home. The Fonderberg farm and the other farms I knew in the region were still operating family farms. And our next stop at the former Zauderzee, the beautiful old sailing port of Hurn, was still maintaining the island prison where I was jailed in 1940 by the Dutch and from which I was released a few days later, courtesy of the German army. Amsterdam had by now almost obliterated its ancient Jewish quarter. Jewish life as it existed there in the 1930s had disappeared. The magnificent historical structure of the Portuguese synagogue is a solitary relic. As in so many other European cities, the streets of Amsterdam are essentially judenfrei, free of Jews. A Swiss colleague, Jean Neroux, tried to unearth the document I was forced to sign in 1942, which ordered my expulsion from Switzerland, but he was told that such documents had all been destroyed. Were they destroyed? Or are the Swiss authorities reluctant to publicize what they did during the war years? The question nags me, especially since my colleague was warned that I could be arrested even now if I returned to Switzerland because I had entered illegally in 1942. Nevertheless, I returned to Switzerland in 1981 at the invitation of the Chemical Society of Bern and later at the request of Swiss television to recount my wartime experiences. In La Chaux de Fonds, we quickly spotted the ineradicable image, the cantonal jail though it has been enlarged with a new wing since the fateful day I spent there in 1942. From La Chaux de Fonds, we drove toward the Doux River in heavy rain and mist. The road was narrow and sparsely traveled with steep cliffs on both sides of the river, which flowed violently. The whole area was thickly wooded and still not much developed. Where one crosses into France at Fournay Blanche Roche, the church in the little village square still dominated the heights, and I silently recalled the old priest who thought that Pifka and I were angels. At Besançon, we visited the cathedral in the archbishop's palace. Then, after careful perusal of a city map, we found the awesome prison fronting on a deceptively quiet road. In Arbois, too, the town of Louis Pasteur, we located the church, now a museum, and close by the quiet street flanked by a high jail wall. In Dijon, we visited the railway station from which I was shipped as a prisoner to Belgium. In Brussels, we tramped through much of the city, including the seedy area near the Gare du Nord and along the Rue Velt, which was still a red light district. The prison at Saint-Gilles, which we didn't revisit, was reportedly still functioning and Waterloo had become a busy suburb of Brussels. Fernand's farm was no longer there. Then we drove to fex le haut clocher It's still isolated. The main highway passes a few kilometers north of it. We easily found the Roberti farm, but it was no longer in use. The buildings were deserted and run down. Windows were broken, and weeds were growing in the farmyard. An old caretaker told us that the farm was being put up for auction for a housing development. Curiosity finally took us to Wavre, where I'd had to pretend as Jan von Capella to be from. It proved to be a busy industrial city south of Brussels. 
In the main square stood an eloquent memorial to the martyrs of the resistance, which showed that the city's citizens had been active in fighting the Nazi occupation. Since my Belgian identity card was issued in Wavre, we checked the city map in the display case outside the city hall, and yes, there is a Chausée de Bruxelles. In the telephone directory, we found several listings for the name Von Capella. Coincidence? Or a miracle? Perhaps my passion for football was not so trivial after all. It gave me Jan von Capella, and with him guardian angels in the city of Wavre, Dirk the painter, and last but certainly not least, the old farmer, Monsieur de Give. In March of 1999, after 25 years of repeated inquiries, my colleague Jean Leroux managed to secure an extract of the 1942 record from the prison of La Chaux-de-Fonds. It stated that M. Schmitzer, my name misspelled in the official records, prisoner number 249, a person of the Jewish religion or believed to be so, had been Weckewiesen an die Französische Grenze, expelled to the French border on August 28, 1942. Thus, 57 years after throwing me to the Germans, the Swiss police confirmed this event without an apology.